Welcome to the Faith Connections Podcast, a partnership between the Foundry Publishing, Nazarene Discipleship International, and Holiness Today. Welcome to our study this week of James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and verses 17 and 18. My name is Scott Rainey. I serve with the Church of the Nazarene in the area of Nazarene Discipleship International, or NDI. This adult Sunday school video lesson is provided in collaboration between the Foundry Publishing and NDI. The Sunday school lesson is intended to support the local church's efforts to make disciples who make disciples. Please feel free to use this video in any way that helps your church or its families. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We've all heard our moms say these words, but we have all discovered the unfortunate reality that it's simply not true. Instead, bones often heal before the bruises on our soul mend from painful words. Our culture today subtly teaches that a word is only a set of oral symbols received through the sense of hearing. An object and an event are more real to us than the mere word. Because of this, we're taught to avoid telling the truth, or at least the full truth. We're encouraged to shade the truth, to put ourselves in the best light. As a result, many people are artists at manipulating words, using words to cover up, to evade, or to confuse others. The world of the Bible was much different than this. The spoken and written word was treated with great respect and sanctions were placed on those who were found to be lying or who failed to live up to their commitments. In the ancient Near East, the spoken word was regarded as active and powerful, effective in accomplishing what was spoken. Interestingly, the Hebrew noun for word is davar. The noun davar can be translated into word, but it can also be translated as a thing or matter. The people of the ancient world took the power of word seriously. Words were treated as concrete reality, just as we treat material objects today. Words had existence and power. A reading of the Bible points to these ancient understanding of the importance of words. You see it in the naming of persons, places, and buildings. The name itself was believed to be a reliable predictor, a descriptor of the person or item named. When we first hear the name of Abraham's 12 sons, we learn their name, what their name meant, and why they were named in this way. Their name meant something, predicted something, had action connected to it. You can also see the importance of words in the blessings and curses in scripture. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Jacob stole Esau's blessing from his father. If you ever thought, I wonder why this is such a big deal. It was just words. Hey, Isaac, just give another blessing to your other son, Esau. You were looking at this passage with 21st century American eyes. Words were a big deal to the people of Israel. Don't forget that God spoke the world into existence with words in Genesis chapter one. God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
Genesis 1-3. His word was as good as action. He said it and it happened. Finally, I wanna remind us that John refers to Jesus as the word. John 1-1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus was called and is called the word of God. As we continue our study on the New Testament book of James, we find James, a thoroughly Jewish first century believer, speaking to the church about our words and the importance of bringing our tongue under the control of Christ. Remember the big picture here. James is instructing the church on how someone with faith is supposed to live out that faith in real life. In other words, uh, this is James teaching the church what holiness looks like. We could hardly find a more appropriate and important teaching for the church today. So let's begin with James chapter 3, verses 12 through uh, 1 through 12, and verses 17 and 18. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of de deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. A teacher in the first century was a high status role in the community. As the church gathered together, Jew and Gentile alike, the Jews had a distinct advantage over Gentiles in their knowledge of the Old Testament. They would have had, uh, they would have been the natural choice for teachers. 
So it is likely that many Jewish Christians desired to be called teacher. James chapter 3 begins with a stark warning to such people who want to be called teacher. He says that it is not the best position to hold because teachers will be judged more strictly. James chapter 3 verse 1. Interestingly, we find out more about James in verse 1. James identifies himself as one of the teachers when he said, you know that we who teach. James was a teacher in the early Christian church. The Hebrew of verse 1 could mean that teachers are held to a higher standard than others, but it could also mean that they will be punished more severely if they lead others astray. Jesus gave such a warning to teachers as well in Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, where he said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Teachers who lead others astray will be severely punished. Jesus says, woe to you. Since teachers are instructing others on how to live their lives to please God, their lives are also scrutinized for any hint of hypocrisy. Let me make one comment here. As we think about the role of teaching, we often go in our minds to the concept of a pastor or a Sunday school teacher. These certainly fit the role James is describing. But before you check out of this Sunday school lesson by saying, I'm not and I never will be a teacher, let me remind us that many of you are teachers because of your position as a parent, an older sibling, or as a leader in the church. If we plan to take on the job of teaching others how to live, we must first be examples for them to follow. Paul understood this and said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Being an example was and is one important way of teaching others. Teachers are a gift, but they carry a special burden to be careful in the way that they live and the way that they use their voice. When James said, we all stumble in many ways, the word choice indicates that the misstep is unintentional. James does not leave room for teachers to intentionally do or say the wrong thing. The reality is that even with good intentions, it's possible to cause harm with our words. Sometimes out of tiredness or carelessness, we can simply say the wrong thing. James tells his readers that one who can control what he or she says is a mature person, one who has learned what is true and helpful to say to others. In verse three, James launches into his exhortation on controlling the tongue. He uses three strong metaphors to get at the issue. The first is bits in the mouths of horses, James chapter 3, verse 3. Common people in the first century did not usually use horses, but they would see horses ridden by Roman officers from time to time. They would have been familiar with these high-spirited animals. Horse bits rest inside the horse's mouth between the natural gap of the horse's teeth called the bar. Riders move the bit 
by moving the reins, depending on the horse's design or the bit's design, rein movements will apply pressure to the horse's lower jaw, the sides of the mouth, the tongue, and even the roof of the mouth, causing the large animal to move in the direction that the rider desires. The second metaphor is the rudder of a ship. James is most likely describing the large ships that were on the Mediterranean Sea. Their rudders look like large paddles under the stern or the backside of the ship. The idea behind both of these metaphors is simply that a small part controls the large object. In a similar way, our words can have a way of controlling our entire lives. Discipline is required not only of those who teach, but anyone who seeks to embody holiness. How do we discipline our tongue in real life? In a, in a discipleship group that I attend, my friend Hal Perkins often says, think about your thoughts. He's instructing the group to not speak quickly and say what is only on our minds in the moment. Rather, be as sure as you can be that God wants you to speak such words. Hal and James are pushing us to be responsible and discerning before we speak. I'm reminded that in John chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus said, For I did not speak on my own, but only, the, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. Think about that for a moment. Jesus never said anything that the Father didn't want him to say. Would it then be possible, with the powerful help of the Holy Spirit, for us to live like Jesus did? only saying what the Father would have us to say. The final metaphor is fire. The uncontrolled tongue is like an out-of-control fire that can affect one's whole life. The word James uses for hell is Gehenna. Gehenna is derived from the valley of the sons of Hinnom, a ravine south of Jerusalem. This place had a wicked history as the place where King Ahab, Ahaz uh, burned his own sons in sacrifice to idols. In Jesus' day, it was the city's garbage dump uh, and burned night and day. Because it continually burned, the smoke served as a reminder of judgment for the Israelites. An uncontrolled tongue not only creates destruction in the moment, but it also follows those who do not control their speech for their entire lives. This continual fire was a great illustration for the uncontrolled tongue. The unpredictable, restless tongue is an evil that will eventually lead to death. In verses nine to 12, James moves from the tongue's destructiveness to its duplicity in praising God and cursing fellow human beings. This issue is heightened by the Jewish understanding that a person is one whole being, body, soul, and mind. The three cannot be separated or lived independently from each other. You cannot have a pure mind and a sinful body at the same time. They act together. 
So James says, how can you have praise and cursing coming from the same tongue? This is an unthinkable anomaly. It would be as impossible as fresh water and salt water coming from the same spring or a fig tree bearing olives or grapes. The Greek construction of the sentence, this should not be, in verse 10, is only found here in the New Testament. This Greek statement was used by Greek moral philosophers to show their outrage at something that shouldn't happen. The crops mentioned in this section, figs, olives, and grapes, were common crops in the Mediterranean basin, so the people would have been familiar with them and how they grew. The bottom line is that what a person says reveals what is really on the inside of that person. This understanding was consistent with the teachings of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus said, what, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Words matter because they are an outside revelation of the inside condition of the heart. As my friend Mark Bain often says, everyone say amen and ouch. Amen because it's true. Ouch because we've all fallen short here. As we move forward toward our final verses in this week's lesson, James chapter 3 verses 17 and 18 sound even more like wisdom literature. Before we get into the details of those final two verses, let me mention that it was common in the first century AD for people to debate earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Greek philosophers were considered to be the epitome of earthly wisdom in that day. Philo, a first century Jewish philosopher, tried to show that Jewish wisdom was as good or better than Greek wisdom. It appears that James takes on the same challenge here in James chapter three, as he contrasts earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. The main problem with earthly wisdom, according to James 3.14, is that it comes from selfish ambition and self-interested rivalry. Heavenly wisdom then, in verse 17, is described using eight virtues. The first is pure. This is the sense that believers should live holy lives that are not polluted by the world. James chapter 1, verse 27. Secondly, peace-loving. While the Greek is used here in James chapter 3, the concept of peace-loving was very significant in the Jewish mindset. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Shalom remains the customary greeting among Jews still today. It is more than just the absence of war. It includes the idea of wholeness, health, and prosperity. Third, considerate. This is the idea of gentleness, kindness, courteousness, and tolerance. These virtues are often forgotten in our culture today. Submissive is the next one, is the concept that a person is trusting. A modern day understanding of this word might be a team player. Fifth, full of mercy is our willingness to forgive someone and is the very clear imitation of God 
who is merciful. Sixth, full of good fruit, which is the observable result of a life lived with heavenly wisdom. The final two virtues mentioned are the exact opposite of the vices of earthly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom is impartial, that is, without favoritism. And then lastly, sincere, or without hypocrisy. With these two verses, uh, while these two verses may seem a bit disconnected from James's teaching on taming the tongue, they are held together by the use of the words fruit and harvest. The reality is that heavenly wisdom is directly connected to the way we speak. All eight virtues are shown so clearly through our words to one another. Any godly wisdom we have within us would naturally flow out of our speech. When our minds embrace the wisdom from above, our words will reflect a harvest of righteousness. Lord, would you please help your church to think about our thoughts before we speak? We desperately need your power to break these bad habits that our culture has created in us. We know that praise and cursing do not belong together. Purify our hearts, O oh God, so that our speech reflects you to this world. Thank you for listening to the Faith Connections podcast. If you wish to order Faith Connection materials for your local church, please visit thefoundrypublishing.com. If you've enjoyed this production and wish to hear more, visit holinesstoday.org slash podcast or find us on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts.